This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 206. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also share my triumphs and struggles as a writing professional. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 64 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. I've got a long chapter for you today, so I'm going to skip the recap. Here's Chapter 64. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in red by Chris Lester. Chapter 64 Morgan raced against the dawn, breaking a dozen traffic laws in the process, and made it to Drowling Tower before the sun's first rays peeked over the barrier range. The police presence was limited to two officers from patrol services, but they kept the curious away from the crime scene and discouraged any repeat performances of the drive-by attack. Morgan found her parents in the penthouse, where they had a brief and awkward reunion that she escaped as soon as possible. They were alive and unharmed. That was the important thing. None of them were ready to deal with the bigger issues that stood between them. In lieu of family therapy, Morgan made use of her status as medical examiner to inspect the crime scene. Uncle Jerome Drowling lay in his apartment solarium, surrounded by shattered glass and spilled blood. A dozen bullets had torn into him, not fully jacketed rifle rounds, but hollow-point, nine-millimeter pistol ammunition. They were the sort of ammunition you might use if you wanted to kill an unarmored man at close range without hurting the people in the next room. Malcolm Advalos, she thought bitterly. Always the civilized monster. There had been no love lost between Morgan and most of her family, and she was not stricken with grief at the sight of Uncle Jerome's death. Still, she felt a cold anger that her family's territory had been attacked so brazenly. It was a personal violation, and one that Malcolm would have to answer for. Perhaps that was her vampire instincts talking. The sun was coming up now, and soon the solarium would be an inhospitable place for her. Morgan left some instructions for the patrol officers to pass on to the coroner team, then left Drowling Tower by subway, catching the train across town to her apartment complex. House Drowling would send a valet to return her skimmer. By the time she arrived at her apartment, she was feeling noticeably drowsy. It must be a sunny day topside. She sank gratefully into her bed, and for a while the world went away. 
She stirred again around six in the evening, feeling hungry and a little anxious. She had been pushing herself hard for the last few days, and she hadn't been feeding enough. She drank some reheated blood from the refrigerator. She had learned, in recent months, that depending entirely on voluntary sharing partners was a risky prospect, and it didn't always lead her to make the best decisions. With the edge taken off her hunger, she took a long, hot bath, scrubbing away the filth that had built up during her misadventures in the tunnels. She was lounging on her bed in a dark blue silk robe, reading a deliciously awful romance novel, and debating whether to take the night off from work, when a knock came at the entrance of her apartment. Curious, she went to the door and peered through the peephole. When she saw who it was, she was surprised, but not unpleasantly so. She unlocked the door and opened it. Michael Pirelli, she said, smiling at him. What brings you here? Michael had a wine bottle in one hand, wrapped in the thin paper bag that upscale grocery stores favored for such things. He smiled back at her, a little awkwardly. Hey, Morgan, he said. I was in the neighborhood. That's a lie, Morgan thought. And I thought I'd swing by and see how you're doing. He raised the bottle slightly. I thought you might be up for some celebration. Or commiseration. Honestly, I'm not even sure which would be more appropriate right now. Morgan opened the door wider and stepped aside. A bit of both, perhaps. Please, come in. Michael stepped into the small kitchen dining area and set the bottle on the table. Morgan locked up, then went to the kitchen cabinets and pulled down a pair of wine glasses. What are we drinking tonight? she asked, crossing back to him. Michael ran a hand awkwardly through his sandy brown hair. Well, um, to be honest, I'd just ask the wine guy to recommend something. He lifted the bottle. This one says 1995, it's red, and it has a picture of a bird on it. Morgan laughed and took the bottle from Michael to inspect it. It wasn't world-class wine by any standard, but it was a respectable vintage that probably hadn't set him back more than twenty marks. She uncorked it and transferred the wine to an aerating pitcher, where she swirled it for a minute or so before pouring. She handed Michael his glass, then clicked against it with her own. Cheers, she said. Cheers, Michael said, and they drank together. Morgan's small apartment did not offer much in the way of lounge space, so they sat across from each other at the little table. They both drank for a while in silence. Morgan wanted badly to ask Michael why he had come, but she was grateful not to be alone just now, and she did not want him to think he was unwelcome. She sat and watched him, drank her wine, and waited to see what he would do. When he finally spoke, he kept his eyes on the table between them. I missed most of the action yesterday. You and Kate and John were fighting for your lives. I spent most of that time handcuffed and sitting down. He paused. You brought me in on this thing, and I wasn't there when you needed me. It's been bothering me a lot. Morgan quirked an eyebrow at him. As I understand it, you did rather more than John or I did. That online video of your arrest was a brilliant maneuver. The government is facing real pressure now to investigate the Brotherhood. Michael swirled his glass, watching the wine dance up and down the sides. 
Yeah, that was a great idea. It was so great, in fact, that I've spent the last twelve hours dodging reporters who want to hear all about it. He shuddered and briefly met Morgan's eyes with a bleak expression. They were at my apartment, camped out in front of the building. Ah, Morgan said. She was beginning to understand why Michael was here. Yes, I know a bit about that. I know you do. He spread his hands on the table, palms upward. I'm just a farm boy, Morgan. I barely had a handle on living in this city before. How the hell do I manage it when I've got someone shoving a microphone in my face every time I turn around? Morgan nodded slowly. There's an art to it, to be sure. We're in a difficult position, because we're responsible for more than just ourselves. I have the honor of my house to uphold, and we both have our oaths to the department. Yeah. Michael took a long drink from his glass, then set it down. I keep making enemies here, because I don't know when to talk and when to shut up. Sergeant Hawkins hated me enough that he was going to pin a three fifty one on me just to get rid of me. Hawkins is a buffoon. I know. I got lucky there. What's going to happen to me if the next guy is competent? He shook his head. I know my job. I can do it pretty well most of the time. But it's obvious I don't know this city half as well as I need to. He picked up his wine glass and saluted her with it. And that, my friend, is why I am asking for your help. His lip quirked upward. If you'd like me to get on my knees and grovel, I am prepared to do so. For a moment, Morgan savored the image of a shirtless Michael groveling under her flogger at the local dungeon. It was a delectable thought, but probably an unrealistic one, and she soon dismissed it from her mind. Besides, she always had Evan for that. I should hardly think that will be necessary, she said, giving him a wry look. It's the least I can do. For a friend. Michael met her eyes again, just for a second, then lowered his gaze back to her chin. A little tension eased out of his neck and shoulders. He raised his glass again. To friends. To friends, she agreed, and touched his glass with her own. Callie returned to her apartment after sunrise, which was late even for her. Slippers greeted her within seconds of her coming through the door, rubbing against her legs and berating her loudly for her absence. Callie set down her keys and picked up the cat, then held her close, pressing her face into her fur. Hey, dummy, Callie said fondly, as slippers purred and chattered. She carried the cat into her bedroom plopped her on the nearest pillow and stripped down to her underwear, then sighed in exhaustion. She sat down heavily on the edge of the bed, and immediately slippers climbed into her lap. Callie sat, stroking her fur, and let her mind go blank. After a while, her phone beeped, a page from Kenning Security. She pushed the button to respond. Ferret here. Hey, boss. It was Nate, the computer guy. You asked me to tell you when Detective Katane made it home. She and her boyfriend pulled into her apartment about a minute ago. Great, thanks. She took a deep breath, then asked, Do we have eyes on Will yet? Nothing current. 
but I got a positive ID on him and the leopard chick at a bus stop around one o'clock, so it looks like they got out of the tower all right. The knot in Callie's stomach eased slightly. Good. Let me know if you get anything else. Will do. He paused, and Callie heard another voice speaking faintly in the background. Vixen wants to know when you're coming back to base. Your new friends have been busy this morning. They're not my friends, Callie sighed. It's just business. Let me get some shut-eye and I'll be there by four. Aye, aye, boss. Sweet dreams. Callie snorted and rang off. She climbed into bed and wrapped her arms around one of her pillows. Slippers came up and settled behind her head, purring contentedly. The cat's presence soothed the aching, empty place in her heart, at least a little. She lay there a long time, listening to the rumble of her purring, until she finally drifted off to sleep. She woke a little after one in the afternoon. Slippers was gone from the bed, off doing whatever cat things pleased her at the moment. Callie rose and went through her wake-up ritual on autopilot. Shower, coffee, clothes, breakfast. She turned on the news channel while she heated the water for the coffee and left it on throughout, periodically coming back to watch the screen as news of the night's events rolled in. The talking heads were going crazy with speculation, especially about the wave of assassinations in the hours before dawn. None of them got very close to the truth, and the sole statement from the police just said they were looking into the matter. Excerpts of Michael's video got played five times in the space of an hour. She refilled Slipper's food and water bowls, cleaned her litter box, then put on her boots and helmet and hit the road. Traffic on street level was light, and she made it to Kenning Security in half an hour. Up in the loft, Ava Salindi had taken over the kitchen table. She was dancing back and forth between two different mobile phones, Silas's landline, a tablet computer, and a small filing cabinet's worth of paper documents. Over in the bedroom area, Nate was passed out on Silas's bed and snoring loudly. Brian sat at the main workstation, flicking back and forth between the video feeds from different security cameras. Ava rang off the landline and turned to Callie as she exited the lift. About bloody time, the androgyne said. The next time you decide to upend the entire socio-political structure of the street, perhaps you could give us a bit of warning? You play the hand you're dealt, Callie said. She crossed to the kitchenette, set her helmet on the counter, and helped herself to a glass of water. I had a couple of trump cards and not much else. Where are we with the count? Ava consulted her notepad. Twenty-three agreed immediately. Another thirty-seven are various degrees of persuadable. They'll hear you out. Fifteen knows. Callie nodded. Could be worse. Who did the Reds pick for their representative? Ava's lip curled in distaste. Guess. William Westerson. Cheers, Ava said dryly. Callie sighed. The spymaster of Malcolm's criminal organization was plain-looking, quiet, ferociously smart, and one of the most dangerous men in the city. Make sure everybody knows before we get started. I don't want him getting any more leverage on anybody. Probably a futile hope, but I'll tell them, Ava said. There's another representative coming as well. 
Callie raised her eyebrows. Yeah? Supposedly. Callie glanced over at the workstation, where Brian was clicking and typing with a focus Callie associated with handling high explosives. I guess the dead drops must have worked. We'll find out soon enough, Ava said. Callie went over to the workstation and put a hand on the back of Brian's chair. Any luck? she asked, keeping her voice low. Brian glanced quickly up at her, his eyes apologetic. Nothing yet. He wasn't in the garage, or in the collapsed building. The tunnels are still flooded, so if he was down there, we might not know for days. He wasn't, Callie said flatly. What about the spots the Reds hit this morning? Brian looked at her with an expression that was pretty close to the one Ava had given her about Westerson. The vamps say they didn't find anything. They could be lying, but I can't see anything from here that would prove it. He hesitated. Callie, the most likely explanation is... He's alive, Summers, Callie said sharply. She glared down at him for a second, then turned quickly away as she felt tears begin to cloud her vision. She stepped over to the railing and looked out over the server room below, watching the lights and equipment racks slowly blur together. I'm gonna find him. Somehow. We just have to hold things together until then. Brian got up and stood at the railing beside her. He didn't look at her, but he put his hand on the railing and extended it a few centimeters into her space. She looked down at it, looked away, clenched her teeth for a few seconds, then covered it with her own. She wrapped her fingers around his palm and squeezed it hard. We're here for you, Brian said gently. We'll help you however we can. Callie's nose was dripping. She sniffed it back, then covered the sound with a quiet laugh. As long as I keep paying you, right? Brian snorted. Hey, you think you can get IT service this good for free? I got a family to think of. His tone was light, and it made Callie laugh for real. Just for a moment. She shot him a grateful smile. You're good people, Summers, Callie said. Thank you, Brian said. Now show me how to make this place kill people. I'd be delighted, he said. Callie's guests began to arrive after seven, when the sun was behind the western mountains and the street was veiled in shadow. They came singly and in small groups, on sleek racing swoops or in battered skimmers. Four arrived by foot, slipping silently out of the darkness and into the harsh glow of the floodlights that surrounded the building. They came in through the front door, submitted to the scanners in the killing chamber, handed over their weapons to Brian for safekeeping, then followed the signs to a room the size of a skyball court. Bleachers rose against one wall on the room's long axis, while the opposite wall held a large movie projection screen. Callie stood on the bare concrete floor between them, remote control in hand. Ava stood at the entrance, greeting each new arrival with her usual warmth and charm, and handed each one a small pamphlet Callie had printed up that afternoon. The attendees were a diverse bunch, men, women, and androgynes, young and old, members of every human race and some of the non-human species as well. 
Some of them waved to her in greeting as they came in. Some gave polite nods of respect, and some glowered at her in open suspicion. None of them attempted to approach her or engage her in conversation. William Westerson arrived, dressed in a modest brown sport coat, collarless white shirt, and khaki pants. He could have been an accountant or an insurance agent or a college professor. Something boring in any case. He carried a leather briefcase, which he allowed Ava to inspect before taking his seat at the top of the bleachers. His calm blue eyes surveyed the whole room with quiet, careful attention. Callie checked the clock. It was nearly 7.30, the posted time for her presentation to begin. She still hadn't seen any sign of the second representative Ava had mentioned. She studied the faces of the assembled guests. There were a few she didn't know, but that was to be expected in a group this size. One of them might be the representative, but if so, they weren't showing any colors that would indicate it. 7.30 came and went, and Callie decided she couldn't afford to wait any longer. She clicked a button on the remote, and the projector on the ceiling whirred to life. Another button made the lights go dim, and Callie went to stand in front of the screen, letting the projector bathe her in cool white light. Thanks for coming, she said. I'm not a topsider, so I'll skip the bullshit. Scattered chuckles filled the room. By now you've all heard that Silas Kenning is missing. That's true. He was kidnapped on Saturday, and nobody's seen him since. She paused, letting that sink in. Then she clicked a button on the remote, and the screen changed, showing the now familiar tattoo of the skull, arch, and key. The photograph had been taken from one of the bodies in the basement SID had raided on Monday night. The fuckers who did it call themselves the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre, Callie said, letting a tiny bit of her rage creep into her voice. This is their tag. Near as we can tell, they're all Skywalkers. They're planning some kind of fucked-up end-of-the-world religious shit, and they've been taking street rats to power their blood magic. We think they took Silas because he'd gotten wise to them or he was about to. She clicked the button again, and now the screen showed a succession of images. The collapsed building where Kate and the others had shut down the ritual, the garage where Murakir had slaughtered the cultists trying to escape, and then each of the hits the syndicate had carried out this morning. Callie heard a few gasps, a few muttered profanities, but apart from that, the room was silent. She let the slideshow run through the whole montage before she spoke again. We made them pay for it. Her voice was calm, controlled, almost quiet, but the rage still simmered underneath. Skywalkers have taken enough from us. They don't get to take Silas. They don't get to take our blood. Murmurs of agreement. And that's my first announcement. I'm putting out a bounty on every last skag who wears this ink. She clicked again, and the tattoo popped back up on the screen. Five large if you bring me proof of death and the skin with the tattoo. Ten if you bring him here alive. The rage rose back up in her voice again, and she stabbed her finger at the screen. These fuckheads are going to know fear. They're going to know what it feels like to be hunted. And I'm not going to stop until every last goddamned one of them is on a fucking slab. 
Loud shouts of agreement rose around the room. As she waited for them to die down, Callie tried to master herself, taking deep breaths, pushing the rage back down. If she wasn't careful, she might cry. She couldn't show weakness in front of these people. When she thought she had control of herself again, she clicked the button, and the Kenning security logo came up on the screen. You all know Silas, she said. He's been our broker for a long time, and I think everyone here knows that the runner business goes a lot smoother with him looking out for us. She clicked again, and Silas's photograph came up. He was sitting behind his workstation, glowering at the camera in his usual curmudgeonly way, but Callie could see the sparkle of amusement in his eyes. She still remembered the day she had taken that picture, more than four years ago. She was very glad she had. Silas isn't here right now, Callie said. I'm still planning to get him back, but in the meantime we have to do for ourselves. She advanced the screen to another slide. This one had her own picture at the top, with photos of Ava, Brian, and Nate spread out below it. Each of their names were printed below their photographs, along with a short list of their areas of expertise. So until further notice, this is your team at Kenning Security. We'll do everything Silas did for you. Brokering negotiations, contract enforcement, escrow for goods and payment, and, of course, security. Stick to the code, and we'll treat you with an even hand. Break it, and Eli himself won't be able to hide you from us. She clicked another button on the remote, and the lights came back up. She looked around at the assembled runners. Any questions? An old, grizzled man with a thick beard and a leather vest stood up in the front row. How do we know you ain't gonna skim the best contracts for yourselves? Callie met his gaze squarely. That's a fair point, Ragland. Here's my offer. Ava and I won't take any contracts for ourselves as long as we're running things at Kenning. In exchange, we'll charge you the same rate Silas did. 20% on any deals we broker for you. Escrow and security services extra. Details are in your pamphlet. Ragland sat back down, looking mollified. I've got a question. A woman in the third row stood up. She was Yamatoan, with a short bob of straight black hair, and she had an elaborate tattoo of black flames that spread from her collarbone up the left side of her face. Say we agree to work with you. How do we know our clients will do it, too? Everybody trusts Silas, but you've made enemies, Linder. So is Selindi. And I don't know who the fuck those other two skags are. She jutted her chin at the screen to indicate Nate and Brian. What's to stop somebody else from setting up their own service to undercut you? Callie nodded respectfully to the woman. Hey, Tanaka. I'm glad you asked. Mr. Westerson, could you come down here now? Several heads whipped around in alarm as Westerson rose and quietly made his way to the front of the room. A number of runners scooted closer to their neighbors to give him a wide berth. Westerson came up to Callie, and both of them exchanged a deep bow. Then they turned back to the crowd, and Westerson raised the briefcase. I have here a contract signed by the Vampire Prince himself, Westerson said. 
he agrees to recognize Callie Linder and her team as the sole authorized brokerage for all contracts between the Runners Guild and our organization. In addition, we agree to provide enforcement services against any party who violates the terms of a brokered contract. We also have written agreements with Majestic Industries and 13 other corporations who work with the Guild for Services, Callie said. Your pamphlet contains directions to a secure WorldNet server where you can see their endorsements. Westerson gave the other woman a very small smile. Does that address your concerns, Miss Tanaka? Tanaka crossed her arms. It's a start, but the Reds aren't the only game in town anymore, Westerson. The way I hear it, the White Widow's got more juice than you do, and I don't see her here. The so-called White Widow is nothing but a terrorist, Westerson sniffed. I don't care if she's the goddamned Queen of Rokilia, as long as her money spends, Tanaka said. And I don't know how she's going to feel about me if I'm working with people the vampires are propping up. Another woman stood up in the second row. Miss Linder, may I say something? Callie looked at her. She was a beautiful Sylvan woman, tall and willowy, with wavy black hair and eyes of some very pale color. She wore denim cutoffs and a black halter top that exposed much of her porcelain white skin. From the neck down, her flesh was covered in scars. Many of them looked like old vampire bites. Hey, Callie said. Sorry, I don't know you. Go ahead, speak your piece. The half-elf nodded her thanks to Callie, then turned to address the rest of the group. My name isn't important. I was sent here as an observer on behalf of the White Widow. A chorus of murmurs ran through the room. Many of the runners looked skeptical. In answer, the woman drew a small electric torch from her pocket and clicked it on. It lit up with a dim purple glow, and she pointed it at her left arm. Immediately, an elaborate tattoo, previously invisible against her white skin, lit up with a blue-white phosphorescence. It showed a spider resting in the middle of a web, the strands of which ran all the way from her shoulder down to her fingers. The Sweelman numeral for eight, V-I-I-I, was written on the spider's abdomen. The woman turned left and right, letting everyone get a clear look at the tattoo, before she turned off the torch and put it away. When I came in, I gave Ms. Salindi a data stick. By now, I will assume that Mr. Levy and Mr. Summers have had time to examine it. Callie looked up at Ava. She nodded, gave Callie a one-second gesture, then left the room, presumably heading upstairs. The data stick contains a video message from the White Widow. With your permission, Ms. Linder, I would like it to be played for the entire guild. Callie frowned. Just a sec. She walked to the corner of the room, pulled out her phone, and pushed the talk button. Nate, who is this chick and what's she trying to pull? I don't have an ID on her, boss, Nate said, but the video seems to be legit. There are fingerprints in the code that match some of the transmissions Mr. Kenning was tracking last week. Did you watch the video? Yep. It's good news. I think you should show it. All right. Put it up. Callie dimmed the lights again, and the video came to life on the projection screen. A woman sat behind a desk in front of a bookcase, dressed in a white funeral gown embroidered with silver spiderwebs. 
The gown's veil obscured most of her face, revealing only wine-red lips above an elegant, pointed chin. She was lit mostly from behind and to one side, which further obscured her features. Ladies and gentlemen, honored androgynes, the White Widow said. The voice had been distorted in the video, no doubt to further disguise her identity. My contacts on the street have informed me of the unfortunate situation with Silas Kenning. I understand the difficulties this will pose for the continued operation of the Runner's Guild. It benefits no one if the Guild should fall prey to infighting or mutual distrust. Because of this, I have directed my operatives to fully support Callie Linder and her associates in their stewardship of Kenning Security. We agree to contract the services of runners exclusively through them, should the retention of such services prove necessary. In addition, we will abide by the provisions of the runner's code. Runners who come into conflict with our agents will be offered quarter if they are captured, and may bargain for their freedom without coercion. If anyone is revealed to have broken the code, or violated a brokered contract, my operatives will share resources and information with the Guild, so they may be brought to justice. The White Widow paused, then leaned forward slightly over the table. When she spoke again, her voice had taken on a softer tone, even through the distortion. I know many of you fear I have come to destroy the street, to bring chaos on its people. I have not. My war is with Malcolm Ardvalos and no one else. In the course of that war, you may find yourselves working for me or against me. In either case, know that I bear only good will toward you and yours. When Malcolm is destroyed, when his empire crumbles around him, I will pick up the pieces. Together, with your help, we will build a better world. She smiled. Until then, good fortune to all of you. The screen went dark. The crowd erupted in murmurs. Kelly brought the lights back up and saw that the widow's agent had taken her seat again, along with Tanaka. Westerson was staring fixedly at the screen, a slight frown creasing his brow. Kelly imagined him furiously trying to put together all the clues in the video he had just seen, as if he could figure out the White Widow's identity just from those few minutes of footage. Callie turned back to the crowd. Well, folks, there it is. Are you with me? She raised her hand, palm outward. At least a dozen hands went up immediately. Gradually, others followed, until nearly every other runner in the room had joined them. The last few holdouts looked around at their fellows, then grumblingly, grudgingly raised their own hands as well. Callie allowed herself one brief, relieved smile. Cool, she said. Thanks for coming, everyone. Kenning Security is back in business. And that's the end of Chapter 64. Come back next time, when Morgan's CSI team recruits a certain paranormal investigator to wrap up some loose ends. Robin Wells said, Writing is a lot like making soup. My subconscious cooks the idea, but I have to sit down at the computer to pour it out.
So, grab a ladle and let's see what my brain's been cooking up lately. It's time for the weekly writing report. Over the last two weeks, I wrote 7,744 words in 15.25 hours, averaging 508 words per hour. I broke my chain on Wednesday, ending my streak at 375 days. Last week, Mel and I went to Montana for a much-needed vacation. It was a great opportunity to get away from the routine distractions of home and office and get some writing done. My first project was a scientific paper, based on some research I did last year, which we are submitting to American Pharmaceutical Review. If it's accepted, it will be my first scientific publication since 2005, so I'm pretty excited about it. That piece was 2,500 words, but it took me more than seven hours to write, for an average of 357 words per hour. Scientific writing is a lot slower than fiction writing. I finished it in two days, though, and that left me with some time to focus on my new novel, None Shall Dwell Within. I also did some work on the next few episode scripts, which was an easier thing to focus on on the days when we did a lot of driving. This Wednesday, I broke my chain for the first time in more than a year. There wasn't any particular reason for it, just poor time management. I didn't get any writing done at lunch, we had a friend over for dinner, I practiced piano for church band, and by the time I'd gotten everything else done, it was midnight, and I couldn't afford to stay up any later. I don't know if this is actually the longest chain I've ever managed, but it's up there. I think I'm going to start keeping track of that in my writer's log. At any rate, this week I continued working on None Shall Dwell Within. I'm currently writing Chapter 2, and the manuscript is just over 5,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900 then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.